Tonight's bedtime story is called Close Knit, and I would just like to say that to my knowledge, my parents have collectively never lifted even one finger uh, in an attempt to help me find a mate. Um, And for that, I'm grateful. Let's begin. At first, Gene was adamant in his refusal to go on the cruise with his parents. But he lived at home and was between jobs, so it was difficult for him to escape his mother's nagging. You're 31, said his mother. This will probably be our last chance to do something like this. Gene didn't understand the correlation. Eventually, his mother just bought tickets for all three of them and told Gene that if he still refused to go, then he would be choosing to waste his parents' money, and that would be poor thanks for the free food and place to stay with which they provided him, even though he was an adult. Gene's resolve wore down over time and eventually crumbled to nothing. The last question Gene asked his mother before agreeing to go on the cruise was, Is this one of those themed cruises? No, said his mother, of course not. Those are tacky. She was lying to his face. On the first night of the cruise, all of the guests gathered in the ship's main dining room and sat at round tables while waiters took drink orders. There were twelve people at each table. That's when Gene began to notice that something was amiss. At the table at which he and his parents sat, which was near the front of the large, dimly lit room, there were three other groups of guests, each group comprised of an older couple accompanied by a younger person of about Gene's age. Two of the older couples were accompanied by younger women. One of the older couples was accompanied by a younger man. It didn't take long for Gene to realize that these were also parents and their adult children. Gene looked around the room and realized that the other tables were arranged in the same way. Four sets of parents with one adult child apiece. There were two adult children of both sexes at each table. A flush of anger crept over Gene's face. He turned to his mother, seated on his left, and said, What is this, Mom? What kind of cruise did you bring me on? Gene's mother smiled at him and patted his knee under the table. The captain will explain, Gene. Don't get angry until you know the details. Gene turned to his father on his right. Gene's father looked like a male version of Gene's mother. They were even the same height. Dad, said Gene, tell me what's going on. It's not a singles cruise, said Gene's dad. His smile was more confrontational than Gene's mother's had been. Gene looked around at the other guests at the table. The parents looked grim, defiant, smug, giddy, but their adult children, all three of them, looked mortified. At the front of the room, the captain, looking sharp in his crisp white uniform, stood up and faced the assembled guests with a wireless microphone in his hand, a tiny spotlight illuminating him from the chest up. Hello, he said. I'm Captain Farms, and I'd like to welcome you to your close-knit cruise. Throughout the dining room, parents applauded heartily, and their adult children applauded less heartily, or not at all. As the applause faded, Captain Farms continued speaking. Here on your close-knit cruise, we have only your best interests at heart. We know that when perfectly fine people reach a certain age and find themselves still single, they can begin to question their own worth. But we know that they're perfectly fine, and we think that it's important for them to know it too. But we also know that even though they're perfectly fine people, there's a good chance that they are bad at finding perfectly fine people to date. After all, there must be some reason all these perfectly fine people are still single. This is where you parents come in. We know that you want nothing more than to have your children find people who make them as happy as you all have made each other. And we also know that you often know your children better than they know themselves. And that's why you're all here together. This is the perfect opportunity for singles to meet each other, to meet each other's parents, and for singles' parents to meet other singles' parents in a fun, safe, exciting, romantic environment. In fact, that's the close-knit cruise motto. Singles meeting each other, meeting each other's parents, and singles' parents meeting other singles' parents in a fun, safe, romantic, fun, uh, 
exciting environment. Anyway, that's enough of my blabbering for now, but please, as our waiters take your orders, get to know each other. Get to know each other's parents. Get to know each other's adult children, um, and so on. Thank you. As Captain Farms spoke, it became clear that Jean had not been the only one whose parents had lied to him about the true nature of the cruise. There were cries of outrage and anguish, angry whispers and shushings, people standing up and storming out of the dining room with tears in their eyes. When Captain Farms sat down, Jean couldn't look at his parents. He was afraid he'd say something terrible to them. Instead, he looked across the table at a younger woman with black hair that was shorter than his. Other than the short hair, she looked exactly like her mother, minus no more than ten years. The woman met Jean's eyes, and Jean saw his own weariness reflected back at him. A lot can happen in two weeks, said Jean's mother. I've got a good eye for these things, said Jean's father. I found your mom, didn't I? Oh, darling, said Jean's mother, reaching behind his back to give her husband a playful punch on the shoulder. So, said the other young man at the table's father, where's everyone from? The days that followed were a nightmare for Jean. He and his parents moved everywhere in a pack of three, Jean trailing behind as his parents laughed and chattered and told him to keep up. They sat by the pool, ate at the buffet three meals a day, watched comedians and listless cover bands in the evenings, and hung around in one of the ship's two bars at night. And no matter where they went, Jean's parents hounded him with a parade of parents who they liked and who had a daughter to whom those parents wanted to introduce him. These interactions never failed to be awkward for both Jean and the unfortunate young lady, although none of the parents ever seemed to feel even the slightest discomfort. Tell him about your interests, the girls' mothers would say. Oh yes, Jean's mother would say. Tell Jean about your interests. I'm sure you'll have some interests in common. Jean has a very wide range of interests. Jean, tell her some of your interests. Sometimes the girls were openly hostile, and their parents would end up apologizing as their daughters stalked away across the deck or looked back down at their magazines and refused to speak. And then Jean would have to explain that he wasn't offended and that he knew how they felt and that the whole situation was uncomfortable for him too. And then Jean's parents and the girl's parents would look at him as if he'd let all of humanity down. One night in the cabin he shared with his parents, Jean's mother said, Why do you have to keep telling everyone how weird and unnatural you feel when you meet women? It spoils the mood. Women aren't attracted to men who act so self-conscious. I don't feel weird and unnatural meeting women, said Jean. I feel weird and unnatural being introduced to women and their parents by my parents on a cruise where everyone's supposed to get fixed up with someone special through the heavy-handed machinations of their parents. There were two beds in the room, a king-sized bed and a queen-sized bed. If guests wanted a cabin with separate bedrooms for the parents and the adult child, then they had to pay extra. Jean's parents had not paid extra. Jean was lying down on the queen-sized bed with a pillow over his face. We're trying to help, said Jean's father, needlessly refolding the contents of his suitcase. I don't understand why you don't see this as an opportunity, said Jean's mother. I don't know why you're so resistant to finding a good girl. Jean said nothing. It was a senseless fight. He couldn't make his parents see that as much as he wanted to meet a woman someday, maybe even one of the women on the cruise, it was impossible in an environment where parents were so openly encouraged to meddle. Maybe in the morning Jean would say he was seasick and spend the day in bed. He was barely involved in his parents' schemes anyway. He thought there was a good chance they'd make better progress without him. But the next morning when his parents woke him for breakfast, Jean was too hungry to follow through with a feigned illness, so he dragged himself out of bed and into the shower, stealing himself for another day in matchmaking hell. After an irritating morning, a harrowing lunch, an interminable afternoon, and an absolute slog of a dinner, Jean went back to the cabin to use the bathroom and stayed there, doodling on the back of a room service menu for half an hour, knowing his parents would lose track of time while they were busy meeting other single people's parents at the bar. 
Finally, feeling recovered enough to face the onslaught for another couple of hours, Gene decided he should go find his parents. As he stepped out of the cabin door, he nearly collided with a short young woman hurrying past with an empty glass in her hand. The young woman yelped in alarm, raising her arms defensively, and then laughed at herself. "'You scared me,' she said. She wore jeans and a sweater, even though the night was warm. She had small eyes and thin lips. Both of her ears were thoroughly pierced. "'Sorry,' said Jean. "'I was just going to make a half-hearted attempt to find my parents.' "'Really?' asked the woman. "'I'm trying to avoid mine. "'I haven't seen them for two hours, so I think I'm doing pretty well. "'Don't you think?' "'That's pretty good,' said Jean. "'But if they're anything like my parents, they're not letting it distract them from their mission. "'They'll have teamed up with some poor guy's parents "'and cornered the poor guy with tales of your many interests, talents, and interests. "'I've got different problems,' said the woman. "'I can't save all of us, but I can minimize the damage to myself. "'All I'm worried about at this point is self-preservation.' "'I wish I could follow you down that path,' said Jean, "'but I just can't. "'My mom will cry, and my dad will tell me "'how much they paid for my ticket again.' "'So they're still looking for someone for you?' asked the woman. "'Yes,' said Jean. "'This method is failing somehow. "'I'm as shocked as anyone.' "'You're lucky they're still looking,' said the woman. "'My parents found someone for me, and that's much worse. "'They don't know much about the guy, "'but they're in love with his parents, "'and his parents are in love with them, "'and they're already discussing giant family picnics "'and joint thanksgivings.' "'Yikes,' said Jean.' He realized that he and the woman were walking now. He hadn't noticed when they'd started. It's intense, said the woman. The guy's father is really aggressive. He's terrified that some other bitter, unhappy guy's parents are going to steal me and my parents away before his son and I have a chance to just give in and settle for each other. Ha <laughs> ha, said Jean. Wow. Anyway, I think they're all after me, said the woman. She laughed again. Doesn't that sound so paranoid? Shall we walk faster, asked Jean. No, said the woman. I'm just kidding. I don't think they're really all after me. They're probably all still in the bar, rationalizing my behavior so that I don't seem like such bad spouse material. They had walked almost to the ship's stern. There was no one else around. The breeze coming in off of the ocean blew right past Jean and the woman and went on its way, paying them no mind. The breeze was not for them. It had its own agenda. Jean leaned on the railing and looked down at the black water, watching the ship's hull churn it white. Except for the wake from the ship, the ocean was calm. Jean tried to avoid wishing his parents were present to see how much success he was having talking to this woman. "'Have you seen any dolphins yet?' asked Jean. "'No,' said the woman. She leaned against the railing next to Jean and watched him watch the ocean. "'Have you?' "'I don't think they were dolphins,' said Jean. "'But my parents insisted they were.' Before the woman could respond, Jean heard a man's voice shout, "'This young lady's already got a match! My son!' Jean spun around in time to see an overweight man with a hard, square, drunken face rushing at him, already almost on top of him, and then the woman screamed and the man shoved Jean hard in the chest, and Jean toppled backwards over the railing and fell down and down into the ocean, which met him with a cold, hard slap. By the time Jean fought his way back to the surface and managed to take a long, gasping breath, the cruise ship was well away from him, no sound audible but for the churning of its engines. Jean thought he saw a figure waving its arms up on the deck by the railing, but he couldn't be sure with the salt water stinging his eyes. Fifteen minutes later, Jean still hadn't started to panic. The cruise ship was no longer in sight, and Jean had lost track of which direction it had gone, but he decided that if he had any chance at survival, he needed to stay as close to the spot where he'd fallen overboard as possible. The woman had seen him fall. She had surely alerted Captain Farms of what had happened as quickly as she could, assuming the drunk man who'd shoved Jean over the railing hadn't prevented her in some way. Jean had wondered how long he'd be able to tread water, but he was doing well. The water was calm enough that when he needed to rest, he could lie on his back and float for a while. He wondered if they'd turn the whole ship around, or if they had some kind of smaller vessel that they could launch and send back after him. Jean wasn't blindly optimistic. He knew his life was in serious danger, but for now... 
He was just going to tread water and float and wait for something else to happen. Ten minutes later, Gene was rescued by a different boat. It was much smaller than the cruise ship, but bigger than any boat Gene had ever seen on the lakes at home. It appeared out of nowhere, passing so close to him in the water that the people on deck were able to hear his shouting over the sound of the engines. And now here he was, dripping wet on the deck of the boat, being hugged by a lumpy man with pale skin, black hair, and an accent that Gene couldn't place, while four young men looked on. Three of the younger men had the same complexion and features as the man hugging Gene, but the fourth was taller and slimmer and had a less foreign bearing about him. The man finally stopped hugging Gene and stepped back to examine him. First I plucked one American from the sea, and now I have plucked another American from the sea. I fell off of a cruise ship, said Gene. I thought they might come back for me, but you found me first. I found you first, shouted the man, grinning. And my name's Gene. I and my sons found Mr. Robess bobbing in the water miles from land, and now we have found Mr. Gene doing the same. Gene looked at the tall man. You were in the water? Did you fall off of the close-knit cruise, too? No, said Mr. Robess. I was on a different cruise. Incredible, said Gene. How long ago did you fall off? How did it happen? Three days ago, said Mr. Robess. He ignored the second question. Wow, said Gene. I can't believe how lucky we are that this ship came along. We both fell off of different cruises, and somehow this boat found us both. We should be dead. My name is Dobb, said the man with the accent, the front of his shirt damp from hugging Gene. These are my sons. He pointed at the young men and pronounced their names one at a time, all of which sounded like subtle variations of Dobb. Dobb's sons didn't seem nearly as excited about rescuing Gene as their father did. Everything happens for a reason, said Dobb. Don't you agree, Mr. Gene? Maybe to a certain extent, said Gene. My daughter, said Dobb. She sleeps in a cabin below deck, alone and lonely, sleeping and waiting for a husband. I thought that when I found Mr. Rob S. in the water, it was a sign that he should be the husband to my daughter. But now I have found you as well, Mr. Gene, and I think we must unravel who shall be my daughter's husband, Mr. Rob S. or Mr. Gene. Uh, said Gene, what? You will both court my daughter while we are on this boat, said Dobb, but when we return to our home, you will contact your families and they will visit me so that I can factor them into my decision. The man who marries my daughter must have good parents. Here's the thing, though, said Jean. My parents are on the cruise ship that I just fell off of, but if we can catch up to them when they stop at Aruba, you can meet my parents then. Aruba is where we are already bound, said Dobb. Do you now see that I am right? That all of this means something? Yes, said Jean. This was going pretty well. Gene could wait until they got to Aruba, reveal to Dobb that he had no interest in marrying his daughter, and then rejoin his parents on the cruise ship. He turned to give Mr. Rob S. a knowing look, perhaps even a slight roll of his eyes to show how aware he was of the fact that Dobb's ideas were nonsense, but when Gene met Mr. Rob S.'s gaze, he saw not even a glimmer of kinship. I'm going below, said Mr. Rob S. I'm going to bed. We will all sleep soon, said Dobb, but first a popsicle for our second miracle man from the sea. A what? asked Gene. An hour later, Gene was resting in a cot in the complete darkness of a cabin below deck. The dry clothes he'd borrowed from one of Dobb's sons were a bit small, but otherwise Gene was comfortable, if a little hungry. He would have preferred to eat something more substantial than a popsicle, but Dobb had been so excited when he'd taken Gene into the boat's small kitchen and extracted the box of great popsicles from the freezer that Gene hadn't had the heart to ask for another option. The room was warm and quiet, except for the throb of the engines and the soft snoring of Mr. Rob S. and Dobb's sons. Gene was in Dobb's cot while Dobb was up in the control room piloting the boat through the night. Gene should have been exhausted after his ordeal, but he was too wired from all the excitement to sleep. He wondered if there was a radio on board the boat that they could use to contact the cruise ship so that his parents would know he was safe. He'd ask Dobb about it in the morning. 
Then he started fantasizing about suing the cruise line, or at least the guy who shoved him. If nothing else, he figured he could get a refund for the cost of his and his parents' tickets. Once he was back in that boat, he was through socializing. Unless that young woman he'd been talking to when he got pushed overboard wanted to spend some more time together, he wouldn't mind seeing her again. She'd probably want to apologize and blame herself for everything, and then Gene could be gracious and witty, and she'd be impressed with how well he was handling such a potentially traumatic event. Dobb would probably be upset when Gene told him he had no interest in marrying his daughter, but Dobb still had Mr. Robbess to soften the blow. If Gene played his cards right, this whole mess could wrap up quite neatly indeed. Eventually, Gene fell asleep, swaying gently in the cot, adding his low, dry snore to the others. Sometime later, Gene awoke in the darkness to someone shaking him by the arm. Mr. Gene, said a voice in a thin whisper. Wake up, Mr. Gene. What's wrong, whispered Gene. Who is it? It's me, said the voice. Mr. Robess. We need to leave while there's still time. Gene sat up in his cot. Still time? What are you talking about? Shh, said Mr. Robess. Don't wake the sons. I don't have time to explain. All I can say is that we're in grave danger. I can't see anything, said Gene. Do you have a light? I know the boat, said Mr. Robess. I'll lead the way. Where are we going, asked Gene. Do I need shoes? No, said Mr. Robess. There's no time for shoes. Come on. Gene got out of his cot, the linoleum floor cool against his bare feet. Mr. Robess grabbed him by the shoulder. This way, said Mr. Robess. It isn't far. They began to walk, slowly making their way through the darkness. Gene heard the sound of a door opening, and then they were out in the hall. It was a bit lighter outside of the cabin, and Gene could barely see Mr. Robess's silhouette as he led the way down the hall. After a short walk, Mr. Robess stopped. Gene heard a metallic click. Just through here, said Mr. Robess. Gene could just make out a darker rectangle in front of him that he realized must be a doorway. What is this? asked Gene. Is there a raft or something in here? No, said Mr. Robess. Come on. He pulled Gene into the room and said, Here, hold this. Gene felt a key thrust into his hand. Mr. Robess said, Wait here. I'll be right back. Then Gene heard the door close and the darkness was complete again. Gene waited in silence for a few moments and then whispered, Hello? Mr. Robess didn't answer and Gene realized he'd been left alone. He didn't understand what was going on. He wondered if he'd be able to find his way back to the room with the cots by himself. He sighed and, in a louder voice, said, I knew this was too good to be true. And then everything happened all at once. A woman's voice, from somewhere in the darkness, started shouting in a language Gene couldn't understand, shrill and panicked. Gene, startled, cried out in alarm and flailed around unsuccessfully for the door handle, pounding on the wall and yelling for help. Then a light came on in the hallway, visible under the bottom edge of the door, and Gene heard the rapid approach of footsteps and angry voices. With the woman still screaming, Gene finally found the door handle, turned it, and stumbled out into the hall, the key still in his hand. There he found himself face to face with Dobb, Dobb's sons, and Mr. Robbis. Dobb and his sons looked furious. Mr. Robbis's face was as composed as if it had been arranged for that effect by a contracted expert. You, said Dobb, his voice oozing revulsion, you would sneak into my daughter's room after I saved you from certain death? I didn't know where I was, said Jean. Mr. Robbis told me to wait in that room. You have the key in your hand, said Dobb. Mr. Robbis gave it to me. Mr. Robbis told me he saw you sneak out of the cot that I provided you with, my cot, and worried that you might be up to something treacherous, he came to alert me at once, just in time, it appears. I don't know where he got the key, said Mr. Robbis. He must have picked my pocket earlier, said Dobb, perhaps even while I was presenting him with a popsicle, the ungrateful wretch. 
Listen to me, said Jean. Mr. Robbins set me up. I don't know why. Maybe he doesn't want any competition for your daughter. He set this whole thing up. I didn't even know this was your daughter's room. Dobbs' expression could not have been less accepting. I think, said Dobb, that we made a mistake when we pulled you from the sea. You were there for a reason, and we interfered. I think that we will correct that mistake. Having seen your evil behavior, I am glad I never met your parents, if you even have any. Jean tried to fight, but Dobbs' sons easily overpowered him. They didn't even let him change back into his own clothes. Just before they threw Jean back into the ocean, Dobbs' daughter appeared on deck to watch him go. She was not attractive. She looked a lot like Dobb. Jean had been treading water and floating on his back for more than half an hour when the next boat found him. A short time later, Jean sat in the cabin of a small sailboat, drinking hot tea with a man named Ira, who was sailing from somewhere he wouldn't reveal, to Aruba by himself. Jean wore his third outfit of the night. As soon as he'd changed out of Dobbs' son's wet clothes, he'd toss them back into the water. "'I understand your eagerness to reunite with your parents in Aruba,' said Ira. "'And I know this may sound strange, but listen to this idea. "'I have a friend who lives on the island of Curaçao. "'She's a lovely lady, and believe it or not, you're just her type. "'She likes men who are funny.' "'Jean couldn't remember saying one funny thing since Ira had pulled him from the ocean. "'I already have a girlfriend,' he said, the teacup trembling in his hand. "'Ira smiled indulgently.' Perhaps, but you can always do better, yes? And this friend of mine is really something. We'll just swing by Curacao first. I'll just introduce you, and then if nothing happens, nothing happens. But I need to hurry to Aruba, said Jean. My parents will be worried about me. Ira got to his feet. We'll call the authorities on Aruba from Curacao and apprise them of the situation. They'll get in touch with the cruise line who will inform your parents. A perfect plan. My friend's name is Cindy. No, Sandy. Sandy? Anyway, he nodded once to Jean and left the room leaving the door standing open. The same salty breeze Jean had felt on the cruise ship in the quiet moment just before he'd been shoved into the ocean came in through the door, ran over and around the cabin's few furnishings, and left. It still wasn't for Jean.